Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Christine Fennessy, one of the editors here at Runner's World, as well as one of the producers of the show, and I'll be your host this week. For this episode, we've compiled three of our favorite segments from the last year. Olympic marathoner Dina Castor's amazing talk on the power of positivity, a summer night's workout with a couple of shelter dogs looking for their forever runner, and our colleague's confession about how little he actually knows about the shoes on his feet. Thanks for joining us. Dina Castor has accomplished a lot. She's a three-time Olympian, and in 2004 in Athens, she won bronze in the Olympic marathon. She then went on to win the Chicago Marathon in 2005 and the London Marathon in 2006, where she set the American record for that distance. It's a record that still stands today, two hours, 19 minutes, 36 seconds. She and her husband, Andrew, have a beautiful daughter, Piper, and live an amazing life in Mammoth, California. She's a foodie and a cook, and she loves to drink wine, preferably red, and she lives one of those lives that runners can only dream of. She's also had a lot of adversity in her career. She followed up her Athens heroics by pulling out of the Olympic marathon in Beijing in 2008, and she desperately wanted to make her fourth Olympic team in 2012, but finished sixth in the marathon trials. She briefly thought about retiring, but in 2013, she turned 40 and has once again risen to the top of her sport as a master's athlete. She set an American record for masters in the marathon and the world record for masters in the half marathon at the Rock and Roll Philly Half. She ran one hour, nine minutes, 39 seconds. Dina, of course, is an incredible athlete who trains very hard and is the consummate professional. But one of the reasons she staged such an amazing athletic renaissance is because of her mental game. She is one of the most positive, optimistic athletes and people we've ever met. And in part because of that, we asked her to co-host our first ever Runner's World Getaway Weekend at the Weston Hilton Head Resort in March 2016, where she gave the following talk, which has become known, informally around here at least, as the Positivity Talk. The one thing that has been the most surprising and most powerful tool to my success has been that of positivity. And being positive is really analyzing and correcting our, our thoughts and our self-talk and what sometimes accidentally comes out of our mouths and framing it in a more optimistic way. So it's important because our thoughts become our emotions and our actions and our habits. My first uh, dabble in positivity was making gratitude lists when I first became a professional runner. And at the time, my gratitude list before I went to bed, because I wanted to end the day on a positive note, my gratitude lists were things like extra hot cappuccinos and seeing the sun set over Mount Blanca and walking the dog along the Rio Grande River. And after 15 years of appreciating and um, paying tribute to what I was grateful for, I ended up um, going about my day searching for things to add to my list that night. And so it's kind of this self-propelling um, virtual cycle of searching for things to be grateful for. And to boot, on top of that, the added bonus was the fact that when I sat down for that extra hot cappuccino, it actually tasted even better. It became this um, almost a sacred moment as opposed to just something I enjoyed in the middle of the afternoon. So um, gratitude lists were one of my favorite uh, pastimes, but when, um, when it came down to 
thinking about um, my self-talk and what came out of my mouth accidentally as I'm rushing out the door to go to practice and a bit late and right before the door closes, I say to Andrew, who was my boyfriend at the time and he married me anyway, I said, don't forget to take out the trash. And he said, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Can you just, he said, I'll remember to take out the trash, but it would sound so much nicer if you said, remember to take out the trash. And I dwelled on this the whole day, and the next, and the next. It does sound better. It sounds so much less nagging. So I started thinking in practice, oh my gosh, I can't keep this pace. I can't possibly keep this pace, to I am keeping this pace, and I'm pushing my limits. From don't lose contact, don't lose contact, to maintain this, maintain this, stay attached. And I remember in this, in this practice of, of trying to alter my thoughts and, um, and really be mindful of the way that I was, I was thinking and speaking, that I listened to Billy Mills. He's the, the gold medalist in the 10,000 meter from the Tokyo Olympics. And he was talking about a story that he was reading a psychology book at the University of Kansas where he went to school. And he learned that your subconscious does not process negative words. And I thought, well, that's cool. Look at that, our subconscious doing all the work for us. And he said, it may sound good in theory, but if you say to yourself, don't settle, and your subconscious isn't processing don't, it's processing settle, which is the exact opposite of what you're intending. So science and psychology shows that the, the practice of positive thinking creates a chain reaction of positivity in both internally and in, in its effects. Endorphins flood your body. You create neural pathways that carve possibility within us. Did you know that if you smile, even if you're not happy, your body stops producing cortisol, our major stress hormone, and floods your body with endorphins, making you feel, well, happy, even though you didn't feel happy to begin with. So even the, the gesture of forcing a, a smile on your face has a, has a chemical and physiological effect in your body. My most recent example of how powerful optimism and positivity is was um, prior to the Chicago Marathon. And in this, um, leading up to the race, I had a rocky buildup, and I complained to my husband about it. I said to him, as I'm throwing up, I can't come in from throwing up in the bathroom, I had the flu, you know, I'm not going to run this marathon in a couple weeks. And he said, really? Why is that? You've been working so hard. And I said, well, working hard, I've had allergies for six weeks this whole fall. Ever since I was pregnant with Piper, I've had allergies. The rabbit brush and sagebrush, every fall just destroys me. I said, I had allergies for six weeks that compromised my training. And those California fires that kept blowing in every, every morning and ended me on the treadmill instead of working out hard on the roads um, wreaked havoc on my training. And my travel with my sponsor had me in Palm Springs one weekend, in Sacramento another weekend, and on the East Coast on six different occasions. Then I get a phone call at practice one morning, and it's the teacher saying, Piper has the flu. So being the gold medal mom I am, I went to put on um, my, tra my trainers back on and I jumped in the car and I drove to school and I picked her up and I coddled her for a few days until she felt better. And a day went by where things were normal and then I got the flu. And there I was two weeks before the marathon, I can't possibly run this. And my husband said, hmm, funny coming from you, the optimist. And I'm so surprised to hear you say that because although 
all of this happened, you still got in your longest long runs that you've ever gotten in in the past 10 years. You've run your longest tempo run that you've ever done in your lifetime. And you still managed to run sub five minutes on every speed workout that you've done in the past month. And despite all those excuses you mentioned, and that's where he got me, because I do not like the word excuses. I, like, I prefer challenges, because challenges show that you have a solution in mind. And so I immediately, to be defiant, um, chose to be optimistic in that moment. And my self-talk in Chicago went something like this on the starting line. Okay, here we go. Every old cell in this body knows how to do this and faster. And all you new cells, jump on board for a crash course on what it takes. And the gun goes off, and I pass my first water bottle. And I love, though, that I was passing my calories and my hydration and realized I missed my first water station. Crucial mistake. And instead of panicking, I said, all right, I'm just going to grab a glass of whatever's on the course. Hopefully, it's a Pinot Noir from California. <laughs> and, um, and it was Gatorade, but I took it anyway. And uh, so I drank that, and I moved on. Next, I kept hearing everyone, it happened in the media center also, talking about how hot it was going to be. And the runners around me were saying, hot, oh, it's so hot, it's so hot, in the middle of the race. And I thought, well, gosh, at least there's more spectators out here. So they're enjoying this. Then at mile 18, I got tripped from behind. And it created this weird hitch in my step. Like a, there was this phantom kick that just kept happening. And so I decided, OK, I'm just going to roll with this. I'm going to make a, a little surge here and see if I, can, if I can break this hitch in my step. And then we got to that 20-mile mark, you know, that point in a marathon where it's so overanalyzed. You start deep thinking about how things feel. How's your body feel? How's the mind doing? How's the legs? How's that old injury? And 20 miles, I felt amazing. I was like, all right, I got this. This is, this is really working for me. 21, another story. 21 miles hurt real badly, but I dug down and I took one mile at a time. And at mile 24, I gave a wince and they gave a look at my watch and by God, I was still on pace. And that excitement of still being on pace excited me and brought me to the finish line under the, under the record. And I really owe that to optimism, both in my buildup and in the race itself. Just as training cycles build on one another, so does positive thinking and emotions as well. And so I like to think of positivity as cross-training for your brain. Um, by practicing positivity, we are actually rewiring the brain and strengthening centers of our brain that are responsible for belief and love and gratitude and growth. So that practice is, um, is certainly crucial. The continued practice is, is crucial to, to developing a positive mind. But it takes practice and continued practice. And just after my 40th birthday, I was running on um, Owens River Road in Mammoth Lakes, where I live. And I've run this road 100 times. It's where I trained for Olympic Games and national championships and record attempts. And I was with my teammates, but not really, because the men were far ahead of me and the women were somewhere behind me. And I was at 18 miles of a 20-mile run and suffering greatly. And this comes on the heels of, of dabbling in retirement, searching about what that might look like. We bought a camper van, and someday we were just going to set out to all the national parks. And the camper van sat in our driveway for a long, long time because of this day. 
I thought to myself, I don't have to be out here. What am I doing? I don't have to be suffering like this out here by myself alone on this long road. And my fastest days are behind me. What am I, what am I doing? And all of a sudden, I was ripped out of my thought because my left hamstring was killing me. And I said, okay, Miss Optimist, let's think of your right hamstring, which happens to be fine, but that leg's not so good either. So let's not focus on your legs at all. Let's focus on your upper body. My God, my shoulders are up in my ears and I'm hunched over. I'm two inches shorter than I have ever been in my entire life. So my body's failing me, so let's go to the mind, Miss po being Miss Positive. Well, I am positive this run sucks. All right, we are getting away from my mind, away from my body. I am looking straight down this road, that long road. And there's washboards. Well, it brings me back to my body because of course my feet and ankles are killing me. These washboards have just been going on and on for, for mile after mile. So let's look up these beautiful volcanoes that have history and these 14,000 foot peaks. And I look up and by God, there's a bald eagle flying there. Where did he come from? I bet he came from Convict Lake. If I were a bald eagle, that is exactly where I would live. What is he doing down here in the valley? I bet he is going to dive into that river and he is going to pick a trout. Will it be rainbow or a golden trout? Golden would be a little rare right here. But if he picks out a trout, I have never seen that before. Actually, I have seen that before. That time that my dad gave me Planet Earth for Christmas, that Christmas was the best. It was 2006, yeah, 2006, when we decided, my mom, dad, sister, and I, that we would only give recycled or perishable gifts, and I was praying that they would give me wine, but I got Planet Earth. And this whole box set, I plowed through it. It was so amazing. I should have, I should have ran on the treadmill with it, actually, because then I could have gotten more than an hour in. But uh, watched Planet Earth, and that bald eagle with his huge talons and his wingspan taller than I am was the most amazing thing. And before I knew it, the horn honked, and it was the team van. Dina, you ran past the 20-mile mark. What are you doing in your daydream? I thought, I'll be darned. All these years, I thought I was done running, and that was the day that I realized I would never retire, that this is the lifestyle and a way of life, because running continues to teach me so much. And it's a good thing that these kind of runs, these epiphanies happen, because for so many years, I practiced positivity to try to be faster, to try to win races. And now I've gotten to a place where I chase that point in a run where that challenge is there and I have to dig down for the for the to the bottom of my heart to find that positive side to get me through it and it's become a part of who I am that that positive self so some days we search for a mantra and motivation we talk ourselves through a run we use a power word or a powerful quote, and other times we simply need a distraction. So, so running has offered that to me, positivity has offered that to me, and together they're a pretty wicked team. Um, but I'm certainly glad at the age of 43 that positivity doesn't have a biological window, um, that we can continue practicing and continue to build our brains to be more positive, and when we continue that, it certainly makes moments of breaking a foot in the middle of the Olympic Games or having to pull out of the Olympic trials, um, my last race, pull out of the Olympic trials a week ahead of time because I strained my glute in practice. These things could be chalked up to terrible timing or an athlete just pushing the limits and having injuries, but I really believe that the practice of positivity in those little moments in a run allow us to, to cope with bigger things in life when they come up with a positive mind. 
Some days, um, like my long run back on Owens River Road, positivity is a little harder to, to catch and we may struggle and, um, and struggle to find that silver lining. But I'm here to tell you that that silver lining is always there and it's well worth chasing. Thank you. That was Olympic marathoner Dina Castor giving her positivity talk at the Weston Hilton Head Resort in March 2016. Coming up, runners help dogs find their forever homes. The halls of Runners World HQ are full of dog lovers. We've either had dogs, have dogs, or want dogs. So we've long admired the Providence Animal Center in Media, Pennsylvania which has an innovative program pairing runners with high-energy shelter dogs that desperately need exercise, discipline, and routine. I headed down there to learn more about how this running buddy system is so great for these dogs, and for us people too. And I got some key tips for how to run safely and comfortably with your best friend. We had a volunteer here and she was an avid runner. And what she was noticing was that the dogs that she was taking were having um, really great benefits from the running. So we decided that we would push further and see what we could do with it. So then in 2013, we officially launched the Dog Trotter Program. That's Jamie Naborik, Director of Volunteer Programs and Creative Design at the Providence Animal Center in Media, Pennsylvania. Since the program started three years ago, more than 100 runners have become dog trotters. They must complete two training sessions and a dog handling course, and after that, they can come by any time during regular hours to take the dogs out for a run. Most of the time, it's our hardest population that they're working with. They're high energy or stressed out, so these dogs really need the exercise. It's actually really great because with dogs that are, you know, harder to walk, when you get them running, that's the pace that they want to be going at. So, you know, when, when people are walking them, they're pulling and, and jumping, and then once you have a runner with them, that all goes away and they're ready to go. Adria Eichner-Tulin is the dog trotter coordinator at the center. She's one of three instructors who help train the incoming runners. She's been running with dogs for years, and she is a serious dog lover. So I actually have three dogs. Um, I have a Pitbull Bull Terrier, not my runner. I have a Pitbull Labrador, also not my runner. And I have a boxer mix, and she's my running dog. And yes, I actually adopted her from this shelter with the goal that I wanted a running dog. I've been running with dogs probably for about 10 years, um, but they were always other people's dogs that just kind of said, hey, my dog has a lot of energy. Do you want to run with it? I follow Adria to the kennel to take our first dog of the night out for a run. There's classical music playing in the background, and I'm surprised by how peaceful it is. It was close to 7, which is both when the shelter closes and the animal's bedtime. All right, let's go get Ace. We find Ace, a one-year-old Dalmatian mix, passed out in his kennel next to his bed. He came here as part of a transfer from a shelter in North Carolina, and he's been at the center for a little over two months. He is a favorite of the dog trotters. He is also deaf, which is why it takes him a few seconds to realize that we are standing outside of his kennel, and when he does, he goes bananas. He has a lot of energy. Um, 
He also uses uh, this metal chain up here. Adria clips a metal leash onto Ace's collar. Metal, because Ace sometimes likes to bite chains. He thinks they're toys. Metal is a lot less mouth-friendly, so with it, Ace can focus less on his leash and more on his run. Then we head out to a large grassy area in front of the shelter. Good boy, buddy! All right. So it's important that we kind of let them get out. We let them get a little bit of their initial energy out because the dogs are full of energy. They just came out of the kennel. So the last thing you want to do is try and get them to focus on running right away. So it's nice to be able to have this area here to walk them around. You also, if you don't know the dog, get a good feel for what kind of energy and what kind of strength the dog has. And we can do it here on shelter property rather than kind of testing that out, out on the road. Um, if, the, if it's really hot out and the dog's already starting to pant here and looks a little uncomfortable, you know this might not work out. You may need to get another dog out. Um, I would definitely say walk your dog at least for five minutes. Um, what I also like to say is if you're really not familiar with the dog is only to run maybe for two or three minutes and then go back down to a walk, see how they do with that and then go back into a run and do a little bit more of an interval training so that you can really watch the dog and make sure that the dog is comfortable um, and that you're not pushing the dog too hard and that everything with them is looking healthy. After doing his duty, walking around the yard and giving it a few good sniffs, Ace is wondering what the human holdup is. So right now Ace is completely ready for his run. Um, he's getting annoyed because I'm holding him up. He was trying to be a gentleman for a little while and sitting down, but he knows um, this is go time, that when he's out here, he's focused and he is ready to start trotting. We head down the driveway and hang a left up a steep hill in a wooded residential neighborhood. Ace is running just to the right in front of Adria. He's not distracted, not darting left and right. He's like a lot of runners I know at the beginning of their workout. All business. So when I'm planning for distance, one of the first things that I do is I actually look in the dog trotter log and I see how long he's been taken out previously. If he's been at a maximum of two miles, I'm probably not gonna go much past two miles. I may try another like 0.25 further just to test him to see, but I'm not gonna go all the way to five miles. I'm also gonna watch his behavior. So the whole time they should really be in front of us, leading us. The minute that they start falling back behind us, we know they're probably getting tired and or hot and that it's time to turn around. So Ace is fully leading us. Um, Ace just spotted a squirrel. So he got a little extra pep in his step. But yeah, he's giving me a, a nice pull. Nothing that's too crazy. Um, he's not, you know, yanking my arm off, but he's certainly not falling behind us at all. Now, what about speed? Like, obviously, you know, there's a max that you can go and it's probably not the dog's max. How do you modulate your pace? So to me, I make the dog keep my pace. Um, that's part of the training for the trotters. It's an extension of leash training, really. So it's beneficial for them to keep my speed because it trains them that I'm in control and that I'm setting the pace for them. Uh, but if you have a real quick pace, um, that may be a bit much to try with your dog. You may actually have to slow your pace down. What I like to tell people about running with a dog is it really no longer is just your run. It is also the dog's run. 
So you wanna make sure the dog's comfortable. You wanna make sure the dog's enjoying him or herself. And you wanna make sure that you're both being safe. So um, running with dogs in the heat does get a little bit more complicated. Um, just like people, you have to be really careful that they don't overheat. So you have to start watching a lot of the signs. Um, so like I mentioned, um, one thing to watch is where is Ace in comparison to us? Right now, Ace is still next to us. You can see he is starting to not really lead us as much though. So this probably means he's starting to get a little bit warm. Um, you also wanna make sure that their panting is staying at a pretty even level. They're not starting to really heavily pant or heavily salivate. Um, that can definitely show that they're starting to get a little bit too hot. A huge indicator if they go over to the grass and try and start laying down, that definitely means they're getting too hot. If you're running anything longer than a mile, you should probably bring water for your dog. And that can be in a portable water bowl and then some kind of bottled water or if you have a local water fountain that you can use. After about a mile or so, we take Ace back to his kennel. He doesn't even bother with his water bowl. He just flops down on the cool concrete floor. I mean, so right now Ace is like completely sprawled out on the ground. Um, he is loving life. He's smiling at all of us. Um, he's just extremely calm. He's not jumping around and he's ready to be tucked in for tonight. Um, he's letting everybody touch his paws and his tail's wagging. He's a very happy dog right now. I give Ace a good night pat and I thank him for the run. I know he can't hear me, but he's so sweet and his face is so grateful that I just can't help myself. Then we head down another hallway. Adria brings out one more dog. He's a light brown pit bull terrier mix with four white legs and a square head sporting what looks to be a massive grin. He is so cute. So this is Dylan. Um, Dylan is a one, another one of our dog trotter dogs. He's also another dog trotter favorite. There's a lot of selfies taken of Dylan, a lot of videos posted of Dylan. He's a real sweetheart, as you can see. He's got a lot of energy. He's uh, pretty young, um, so he can certainly benefit from um, a lot of runs, lots of walks. Uh, any, any kind of activity that he can get is very beneficial to getting him into a forever home. He's, he's not even gone for his run yet, and he's just leaning against my leg, yeah. like not moving anywhere. He's, and I'm stroking his belly like he's in heaven right now, I think. Ooh, what a sweet guy. Okay, now he's done. All right, now he's ready. So let's go into the front pen, and we'll get his equipment on. So I'm actually putting on an easy walk harness. So this is one of the harnesses that latches from the front. Dylan's easy walk harness wraps around his chest rather than his neck, so when he pulls, he doesn't gag himself. When it comes to running with your dog or a shelter dog, it's a good idea to try several different types of leashes just to see which one works best. After another quick warm-up, we head back out to the same road, and Adria explains her handling techniques. I like to hold the leash really not too far. Um, off the dog so that if they do react, I can react just as quickly. So my tips for running with your dog and dealing with other dogs on the run are that you should always keep at least a street distance between your dog and the other dog. You never know how the other dog's gonna react. So even if your dog is dog friendly, you don't know if the other dog is. You can see I'm trying to keep him 
pretty much at the same distance in front of me, really staying on my right hand side as much as possible to train him to really be a nice gentle walker because if I can get him to do this running, there's much likely a better chance that he'll be able to do it walking. So every time that he's kind of coming actually a little too far to you, just like that, I'm pulling him to the side, giving him a nice kind of, not hard, but a nice correction across. Same thing when he starts going in front of me, I immediately start moving him to the other side. So it's not waiting until he's directly in front of me or crossed all the way to the side. It's that immediate reaction and making sure it's a gentle correction. Let's just get past this dog. As we're talking, we pass a small white dog playing on the grass with its owner. It takes one look at Dylan and it loses its mind. So he just behaved very well. He did actually behave very, very well. He, um, he walked, he just ran right by that dog. Yeah, he's really not dog aggressive. Um, he's barely even dog reactive. Um, you know, it, it's just, again, he's also nice and focused. So what I'll do now to reward him is, good Dylan, good boy, go, good boy, yeah, good boy. So you see the ears go up. He got rewarded for the good behavior. Looks like he's having a blast. He is having a blast. Um, he's not reacting to the other dogs, the other cats, the birds, anything going on. So he's really in his own little zone right now. After about two miles, we head back to the kennel with Dylan. Adria thinks that with more training, he could easily run five miles, no problem. Right now, he looks like he's had the run of his little life. I swear the guy is smiling. Back in the office, Jamie explains why the Dog Trotters program is so important for dogs like Ace and Dylan. What you have to understand is that we don't know a lot about the animals that we're coming into contact to. And their backgrounds come from all different places. We don't know their, their energy level or their threshold for being in a kennel situation. So what you can see is you'll see some stress-induced um, problems, like they could have diarrhea or have rashes or um, you know, do circles in their kennels. And when you see them become dog trotter dogs, those things start to go away, like the excessive licking or the bothered stomach. Um, those are all stress-related problems. So as soon as they start running, like, that, that is actually changing, which is a really big deal because we want to make sure that while they're here, it's as comfortable as possible. And that's what they're doing for them. It's a great fit for our, our organization. And as both Adria and Jamie have seen and experienced themselves, the program also has a big effect on the human runners. Knowing the dogs rely on them gives them a sense of accountability. It keeps them motivated to run regularly, and it is immensely gratifying. To see a furry face behind a cage just begging you to take him for a run, and to be able to do just that, it really kicks to the curb all of our I can't run today excuses. I mean, I can say for myself, there are plenty of times I come here and I'm like, uh, two miles seems like a lot today. But then I get out there and I'm like, you know what, I, this dog's still going. If this dog is still going, like, I can keep going. To learn more about the Dog Trotters program at the Providence Animal Center, go to runnersworld.com audio. Coming up, one of our colleagues comes clean about his running shoe IQ. 
You might think that if you work at Runner's World, you know a fair bit about running shoes. You would be about half right. Sure, some of us like shoes and gear editor Jeff Dengate can go on for days about foam densities and mesh uppers, but some of us start our jobs here knowing little more than our shoe size. And even that fact, we eventually discover, is wrong. So Jeff took one of our newer colleagues, Christopher Michael, down to our local running store to show him why specialty retailers have an edge when it comes to helping you find the perfect fit. I like red and black shoes. Usually, uh, you know, if it's comfortable, I wear it. That's our new online editor, Christopher Michael. He's been a runner for five years, and he's finished two marathons. So maybe you're thinking, that's pretty good. The guy should know a thing or two about shoes. But, well... I really don't. Uh, I have no idea whether I've been wearing uh, shoes that help me overpronate or underpronate or any idea. He does know one thing for sure. He knows what color shoe he likes, which is why we brought him to the Emmaus Run Inn to meet this guy. My name is Chris Schmidt, and I've been selling shoes for about 35 years. Chris Schmidt is the owner of our local running store here in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, not to be confused with Christopher, our guy who likes red and black shoes. I brought Christopher to the store because he's like a lot of runners. He's never been properly fitted for a pair of shoes, and he pretty much always opts to buy them online or worse. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he's also like a lot of people because he never felt comfortable walking into a specialty retail store. He was a little intimidated. Howdy, how are you today? Good, how are you? I'm all right. What can we do for you today? I guess I'm in the market for some shoes. I'm looking forward to learning more about it. I'm Christopher. And I'm Christopher as well. So nice to meet you. we forget those two names, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Chris starts by asking Christopher a bunch of questions, like how many miles a week he runs, 25. If he's had any injuries, no, he hasn't. And if he's training for anything, yes, a relay race. Well, let's go to the back and uh, right. we'll take a look at your feet. We'll measure your feet and go from there. So what marathons did you do? Um, my first marathon was uh, in Hartford. Okay. Uh, I started running in 2011. You know, part of the the real allure for me at that point was that it was cheap. Mm-hmm. So I was running in a pair of um, Payless shoes. Okay. You know, right. regular old gym socks, mm-hmm. uh, swim trunks, okay. cotton shirt. Nice. Right. And uh, made it all the way up to the marathon day and uh, the race was in Hartford. I was living in New York at the time uh, that the night before. Grabbed all my stuff, um, hopped on the subway to take the train up, and was sitting on the subway when I looked uh, down and realized that I'd forgotten my shoes. Oh, no. <laughs> so um, looked real quick on my phone and found that there was a, another Payless shoe yeah. store right above Penn Station. Yeah. Ran over, ran in, got the only pair of shoes that even looked like runner shoes okay. in my size. Uh, the next morning, I uh, laced them up, put the first mile walking to the start, put the next 26.2 uh, running in them, and then threw them immediately in the trash because they just hurt so yeah. much. Oh, um, so that was the first. And then I realized at that point that I, c- I probably should put more than $12 into a pair of shoes. Sure, sure. This is a Runner's World employee, folks. It should be noted, I was shocked. But Chris, the store owner, he didn't even flinch. Okay. All right. So let's have you stand up first. Let me put your uh, right foot on the scale. All right. So this little piece over here measures your arch length. This measures your width, and this, of course, is your toes. That seems about right. I know that. Well, I, I buy nine and a half shoes. The revelations come fast. First, Christopher's been wearing the wrong size shoe. 
Uh, generally speaking, running shoes cut a little bit shorter, so I'm not probably going to start you with a, with a 10, and then we'll, but we'll go from there, okay. but I'll go over the whole fit, and at the end of the day, whether it's a 9, a 10, 11, we'll make sure that everything's in, in the right spot. Okay. So Other things to take into account? Christopher has bunions on both feet, which really makes it hard to find a shoe that fits comfortably. Now comes the walk test. Not as much pressure as on a runway, but it's a little bit more awkward than just walking down the street. Well, Chris, what are you looking for as you're watching his motion? What I'm looking at there is I'm looking in posterior and anterior as he's walking, so I'm looking to see what his ankles are doing and what his arch is doing as he's getting away from me. So just seeing how much that maybe that heel to ankle is, is rolling in or out uh, and just looking how much flexibility is in the arch. So it helps me in understanding his foot type, so it helps me go to the wall and, and what type of shoe he's going to need. You know, obviously, he's not a neutral person because he's, he's pronating a little bit too much. He's also not an over-pronator where his foot was really collapsing a whole lot and rolling in way too much. So he's kind of somewhere in between. Chris heads back to his stock room. He's looking for a pair of shoes that'll give Christopher the little bit of support that he needs to keep his foot from rolling inward. All right, Chris. All right. We got four different styles of shoes for you to try on. The first pair of shoes is the Saucony Guide 9. Chris explains things like how the shoe's midsole helps keep the foot from rolling inward. Think of that midsole like a guidance system. It guides your foot from heel to toe through your stride. He also tells Christopher that shoes typically last about 350 to 400 miles. If you push it too much past that, stuff starts to hurt. For Chris, he says that hurt comes in the form of back pain, but other people might experience it in their knees or their legs or just a general not-so-fresh feeling after your run. I usually switch when I start getting blisters. <laughs> All right, well, see if we can keep you get from getting blisters. Well, that's one way. So you want to go outside and take a spin? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Next, the run test. Christopher runs a few short laps up and down the sidewalk while Chris watches, and he's actually surprised by what he's seeing. So what'd you think? Uh. They feel a little loose in the heel, but otherwise okay. not comfortable. Too, not too bad. So watching you run is definitely different than when you were walking. Yeah. Based on watching Christopher walk, he expected him to be a heel striker. But Christopher lands on his toes, which means he might need a shoe with less drop. That's basically the difference between how far your heel and your toe sit from the road. Just to be sure, Chris has him try another one of those four styles that he brought out originally, a pair of Asics. Not nearly as squeaky, these ones. Same run. Here yep. we go. See, these are definitely softer in the front, all right? But they're tighter in the heel. <laughs> Again, I'm going to have you go one more time. Okay. So, Chris, how important is it to get somebody out and actually running, say, down the sidewalk like, like we are here, rather than on the treadmill or just walking back and forth in the store? For me, I, I still prefer my eyes and watching people run outside where it's more normal. In this case, there was quite a bit of difference between him walking and, and running. When he walks, he's more traditional, hitting that heel and kind of going. When he's running, he's definitely, I mean, his, his whole, really, your, your whole body kind of changed. He's, he's more upright, uh, and, he's, and he's got a, a much more bounce in his, in his step, and he's really not hitting his heel at all. See, the goal with going into a store is to meet the matchmaker who's going to find the best fit between your foot and the right shoe. I think I've seen enough that I know what's, what's going to work for him, uh, so I'm going to let him decide what feels best to him. But I'm going to try a couple different shoes on him right now that maybe not, as we would say, traditional. The first of those not-so-traditional shoes is the Hoka 1-1 Vanquish. So when you look at this next one, you're going to see a lot more midsole, but think of it as a lot less drop. 
Hoka's are known for their super fat, three-finger thick midsoles. The shoes are deceptively super light, but they do look like elevator shoes. And Christopher, he's a bit dubious. It looks just like a really big shoe. It does. Um, hmm, okay. But let's try it on. All right. I also like the design. It looks like a cheetah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, cheetahs are fast. Feels like, like, uh, we used to sort of round it. Feels like my feet are sitting in like little boats or yeah, something. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's watch you run in this one again too. It, it's like running on cushions. Right, what do you think? Uh, it's a lot softer on the front. It feels like really, like I'm trying to figure out where the road is when I push down. These are really cushiony. The last shoe Christopher tries on is an Ultra Torin. Ultra is famous for its zero drop shoes, which means the shoe is just as thick in the forefoot as it is in the heel. They also have a distinctly wide toe box. It's really roomy around your toes. These are really wide in the front. They're like, these almost feel like they're too big. I'll double check the one you stand on it. Okay. All right. All right, let's watch you running these as well. They kind of look like clown shoes. Turns out the Ultras, a shoe Christopher didn't even know about when he walked in the store, went out. I feel like these are actually my favorite shoes, although they look the silliest. Uh, they are comfy. They feel fast. Uh, it feels as much when I'm running like uh, they're just kind of getting out of my way and letting me run. These are, are shoes that I wouldn't have like walked up to the shelf and grabbed, partly because they're, um, they have the least amount of red and black in them. Pro tip, when buying running shoes, it's not about the colors. But uh, also just because they look strange, but um, yeah, they feel really comfy. I asked Chris if he had any advice for other runners making their first trip into a specialty running store. Tip number one, Bring your old shoes with you. Because it's a good storyteller and just tells us how they how they wore their shoes, whether it was correct or incorrect. It is kind of nice just to see the wear patterns and stuff from the shoes. Number two, if possible, go into the store in the afternoon or the evening. When your feet are swollen or maybe if your feet are a little bit more tired. Tip number three. Definitely bring the socks that you're going to run in as well uh, so we can do the fit like you're, like you're going to go ahead and run with them. And if your weight's changed, either through pregnancy or a weight loss or gain, it can change what you need in a shoe. And at the end of the visit, Christopher checks out with his new pair of blue shoes. All right. I'll have you sign here. Thanks again. Thank you. You're very welcome. So what did you learn from the process of going through this? Well, you know, I think basically uh, my two prevailing, uh, you know, criteria for finding a shoe before this were color and comfort. <laughs> with price also in there somewhere. Um, but, you know, all the shoes that, that uh, he showed me were around the same uh, weight. They were all very different shapes, uh, and they all felt very different on my feet, which, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've tried more than one shoe on that close to each other, so I just wouldn't have guessed that. All right, Christopher, now that you have a new pair of shoes, why don't we go break them in on the lunch run? All right, let's go. That was web editor Christopher Michael with shoes and gear editor Jeff Dengate. It's important to note, Runner's World had no influence whatsoever on the shoes that were featured in this segment. That's it for this week's show. Thanks as always to those of you who have given us ratings and reviews. 
We read everything you guys write, and we are so grateful for your feedback. I'm Christine Fennessy, an editor here at Runner's World. I produced this week's show with Sylvia Ryerson and Brian Dalek. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.